we do well if each day that we wake up and God gives us life, we do well if we remind ourselves that our hope is built in nothing but Jesus. Because we live in a part, a place in the world where we can place our hope in a lot of other things. In fact, a lot of us in here probably have placed our hope in certain things so that if, and I say that sarcastically, if God does not come through, we can be supplied what we need. We place our hope in a lot of things. And we can be reminded each day that we wake up that our hope must be built in nothing less than Jesus. It's a good word this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word in some form, I would love for you to join me this morning in the book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now, we're going to get to Luke 17 in just a moment. But this morning, I think we need to do some foundational kind of dig a little into some foundational understandings for us to get a complete picture of why Jesus, I believe, is addressing the crowd in the way that he will address them. In our continued discussion that we have been walking through for about the last four weeks, we've been in a continuous conversation that Jesus was having with a mixed audience, the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners and the disciples. And he has been dialoguing through some parables. And we're kind of coming to the end of that conversation This morning. So, James chapter 1. When we survey the current condition of the church today, we stand in the middle of a dilemma. Especially when we consider the Western church, we stand in the middle of a dilemma. Because the church, the bride of Christ, in which God has redeemed through Jesus' blood. And he has placed us under the headship of Jesus. Has a calling placed on us towards maturity in the faith. That is our aim. Maturity in the faith. But yet for many today, they never move beyond spiritual infancy. And the dilemma is that over time, this unfortunate truth is that spiritual infancy has actually become expected and has become normal. And then anyone who completely immerses themselves and their life in their faith and in their followership of Jesus and abandons all for Jesus is labeled as a radical. So a, a radical Christian as opposed to just ordinary normal Christian. And the dilemma that I see growing is that over time this mindset has shifted the scorecard of what spiritual maturity actually looks like. And we have grown to define maturity in the faith by some extra biblical criteria to where we may very well, if we're not careful, be making disciples of someone or something other than Jesus. Maybe making disciples of the activities of Jesus. But yet, those, when we do that, we run the risk of being those who do not have biblical and spiritual depth the way the Scriptures define true maturity in the faith. And as we've been walking through Jesus' teachings that we read about in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is addressing a crowd that has the appearance through their activity of spiritual maturity on one hand, and then he's also addressing this crowd, the rest of the group, who appeared to just be completely off the grid. 
And this morning, I think Jesus wants to teach us how, as his followers, as we work in the context and the framework of his teachings and in the context of biblical community, that Jesus wants us to see that we are together growing in spiritual depth and growing in spiritual maturity. So we looked last week at how the Pharisees thought they were the spiritual elite because they had become really good at going through religious motions. And their activities were in line with the law. But Jesus points out to them that they were inwardly kind of, it was a wasteland for them. Their hearts were off target. And if we fast forward to to today's culture, I am afraid that we quite often are gauging spiritual maturity by some of the same criteria that the Pharisees would have gauged spiritual maturity. We have created this scorecard, if you will, for spiritual maturity that says if you do this and this and this, then you are spiritually mature. How many of you grew up in a church that had offering envelopes that were pre-printed? You remember those things? Some of you uh, were fortunate tonight. Uh, we grew up in a church that had offering envelopes, and you would get this box that was assigned with my name, or it would have my number assigned to it, and it was pre-printed. And it, and it was what, I, it, would, it would track my giving for the year. I could put my, my 17 cents in there every, every, every Sunday and seal that thing up, put it in the offering plate. And, and I would, so I'd get my box of envelopes every year, and I remember putting my money in there. But then I can remember, if you, those who are familiar with this, I can remember multiple mornings cramming in a quick prayer, reading a verse or two, because I wanted to be able to give a good report of my weekly activity. Because not only was there place to put your offering, but there was a checklist that you checked off the things that you did for the week. Okay, so it would say, uh, did you bring your Bible? Yep. Did you read it? Yeah. How many people did you contact this week? Check that. And so I would fill it out and I would put it in the offering basket and that was my gauge for the week of my spiritual activity for the week. So for me, spiritual activity, spiritual maturity looked like this. If I was present, if I brought my Bible, if I read it, even though it might have been on the way in, if I had studied my Sunday school lesson, that was one of them you could check, if I gave money, and if I made a contact over the course of the week, that, I was excelling. And the scary thing is, the true spiritual inventory of the condition of my heart would often go unaddressed. And so now, though we package it in a more appealing and attractional way, we still can often gauge maturity not by the true condition of your heart towards Jesus, but rather by the outward activity that we engage in. And we become more and more content with a church made up of spiritual infants instead of a church made it being a group of people that are growing and maturing in their faith towards Jesus. We find ourselves being a church who can, in our culture, who can place our hope in a lot of different things that have the appearance of maturity, but yet lack true depth. Heard it said one time, we often see the shadows, but yet we miss the form. It's causing the shadow. 
But yet all around the world, there are people and Christians at the, today that have absolutely zero to place their hope in other than the hope of Jesus. They have nothing to help them fabricate or help them to, 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 to uh, create an environment where they feel a spiritual maturity. They, strict, they literally have Jesus and each other and his word. And Jeff Vanderstelt said it best when he said that many churches are often like perpetual orphanages. And that is that we know how to have a lot of babies and we have a few dads to care for them all. The goal is not, in those contexts, raising up disciple makers, but rather gathering as many people as we can, regardless of spiritual growth, and being content that we are accomplishing something of significance at the expense of hearts that are remaining unchanged. But all the while, we are defining maturity in an inaccurate way for people who are being deceived into believing that as long as we do steps one, two, and three, then they are experiencing a mature relationship with Jesus. And this morning, I think that Jesus is going to address this idea and then also give us some critical guidelines, I believe, for how to grow individually as followers of Jesus in community. So we're going to look in Luke at kind of what I think he wanted to paint a picture of what maturity looked like as they walked together as disciples. But I want us to get it from the context of, of, the, of the, the New Testament as a whole. And I want us to look at James chapter 1. And I want to read, and I want to just paint a picture for you that will lead us right into Luke, okay? So James chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. Let's, with this understanding of spiritual maturity as our, as our goal as we're moving forward in our relationship with Jesus, let's read what Paul, I mean, excuse me, what James writes here in, in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers.'" When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So immediately, James tells this scattered church, this is written, written to the 12 tribes in the, in the dispersion. This is the church that has been scattered through difficulty. And he's writing to them, and he tells them that the goal and aim of walking with Christ and going through these trials and going through these temptations that they have been scattered all over through persecution, the aim is to be complete. The aim is spiritual depth, is spiritual maturity, to be complete and lacking in nothing. And he says sometimes to be complete and lacking in nothing, we have to walk this road sometimes. He says that you're going to experience trials in this life. And he says in the midst of those trials, though they may not bring a lot of happiness, deep down in the midst of your pain and your suffering and your struggles, you can trust that the hand of the sovereign God is actively at work to produce a faith that is complete, that, is, that he's, 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 he's doing this completeness of the faith in you. That he is using these trials to mold and shape you into greater depths. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So follow with me. There are outside things in the form of trials that will fly at you which can only be understood with our faith through a godly wisdom that you must see is working for your good. So he's saying you're going to experience these trials but, but look, I'm going to give you wisdom to understand them. They can only be understood in the context of a godly wisdom that you see that I'm working together for your good. They are most likely, these trials that you experience are, are most likely cases that are outside of your control. He's not saying that you made bad mistakes so this happened necessarily. He's saying that, look, you're going to experience trials but have faith because I'm using this and if you withstand it, as you walk through these trials, he says that, that you're going you're gonna to be complete, you're going to be lacking nothing, and he says that, that you will receive the crown of life. Now, we can react with resentment, or as followers of Jesus, we can react with joy, knowing that though, he, though these forces are coming from the outside and they are painful to walk through, they're beyond our control, that maybe God is allowing us to experience these trials for a purpose to mold us into a spiritually more mature place as we walk with him. He's saying, look, the goal is I'm making you complete. And so as you walk through these trials, it is is a part of your maturing process in the faith that you walk through these trials and I'm using them for a purpose to mold you. Now follow this, verse 13. This is where it gets a little tricky. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So now follow with me, because this sets up the teaching that Jesus has for us in Luke today. So sometimes we'll experience trials. Sometimes we'll face opposition from the outside of us that'll be beyond our control, and it'll become in the form of trials. But other times, other times we will face problems from within our core. So from within us, there are going to come things from our brokenness and our sinfulness. There are going to come temptations. And it'll be in the form of these temptations that attempt to derail us from following Jesus and experiencing a spiritual maturity of the faith. So he, he can use these trials and temptations to make us complete and lacking in nothing. But, but, but sometimes it's going to come from the outside, but sometimes inside of us there's this brokenness and this sinfulness that is going to come out of us that is going to be a temptation to sin. Paul would describe it well when he says that there's this war waging inside of me. He says, because I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do I don't do. And he's like, man, I'm so wretched. I'm such a wretched man. And so, so we see that, we, that in our core, we have this from our core that, 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 that comes from who we are post-fall. And we don't blame this on God. Yeah, trials are going to come our way. And there's unfortunate things that happen in the world. And we cannot control it always. And we can't control it. We trust that the hand of the sovereign God is at work. And then inside of us, we have to see that he is using, he is molding and refining out of us this, 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 this through the sanctification of, of, of our lives. He is refining out of us this evil that is so present in us often from the fall. And he says, but when you have these temptations to sin, don't blame this on God. 
He says, because I can't tempt you. We cannot say, God, why are you tempting me? Because temptation is, at, is, is, is driven from the root, and the, the root is from sin. And God, being sinless, cannot be the source of such opposition. 1 John 1.5 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So this temptation that he's talking about, it comes from within us. And James says that this may happen. He says, so what are we to do? Do not be deceived. He said this sinfulness that just boils out of us, that can cause us to to, to be tempted to sin, do not be deceived by it. He says, withstand it. I'm going to use this resistance to temptation to continue to mold you into towards holiness. Now go with me to Luke 17 with that understanding that temptations are going to come and we must be careful they are part of our maturing process. They are part of us maturing closer to who Jesus made us to be. Now look in Luke 17 because I believe that Jesus wants to show us a connection this morning between the calling to spiritual maturity and the danger that temptations to sin can bring to us that can stunt this process. So follow me. Trials will come. Temptations will come and they will be leveraged by Christians for God to deepen our walk with him. So here Jesus' words to his disciples in Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptations for sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So very similar to James's writings, he's saying temptations are going to come. Very similar to Paul saying, man, I'm so wretched. The temptations come. And now Jesus telling them, telling his disciples, temptations are gonna come. But woe, woe to the one through whom they come. So Jesus has just warned in this this conversation that we've been following for the last few weeks. Jesus has just warned the Pharisees about the temptation of their sin of loving money. And now he warns his disciples about possible sins in their lives, warning them that occasions to stumble are an unfortunate part of the fall. Now, he is not contradicting himself here by saying in James that we welcome trials and temptations with joy and here that we should be woeful at their coming. He's not, there's no contradiction here. He is warning his disciples that temptations are unfortunate because they are part of the fall. And stumbling blocks that will attempt to alienate us from allegiance to Christ. And he said, these are coming. He says, I hate that that's coming. It's part of the fall. But as we resist them, as we press into Jesus, and we resist through the power of the Holy Spirit, the temptation to sin, God uses that to sanctify us and to deepen us. So Jesus tells his disciples, temptations are coming. Now, sin is enticing, isn't it? Can we just all agree on that? To the allure to sin is enticing. If not, there would be no one tempted by it, right? I mean, anybody had an overwhelming temptation this week to mow the yard an extra time? No. Why? There's no enticement there. There is nothing appealing about that. But do we see a new neighbor with a new vehicle? or a nicer home, or a better job, and find ourselves tempted to covet. For sure. Why? Enticement. There's a temptation there. And Jesus says here, woe to the one through whom they come. 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. But look at what the woe is addressing here. That Jesus is saying woe because it would be better for a millstone to be put around your neck and you be cast into the sea over causing a little one to stumble. Now, who is the little one in this passage? You know, I believe Jesus was not referring here to children, although Jesus speaks about a little, little children. But in the context of what we're talking about here, I believe Jesus was not referring to children, but to young believers. Young believers, new believers who were, who were learning to follow Jesus. Based on the context of who Jesus has been teaching so far, maybe the little ones meant the publicans, the sinners who had come to believe in Jesus. Because in the context of what he's teaching, maybe he's saying temptations are going to come and woe if you cause any of these people through these activities and these temptations to sin, maybe in this context, through our self-righteousness. Woe, it's better for you that you would be cast into the sea than to cause one of them to stumble. And Jesus said, take serious the, 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 the danger, the offense of inhibiting a believer from growing and learning in the faith due to sin and temptation. He says, take caution in that. It's serious here. I want you to grow in your maturity. I I don't want you to slip up through temptation and sin and don't cause that offense to these people. Maybe he's talking to the Pharisees here saying, but do your self-righteousness. Don't be tempted to sin and trip up these new believers. Don't trip them up here. But, 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 But allow maturity to take place through these temptations. Let's keep reading verses three through 10. So look what he says, very much like the warning we read in James. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and then afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus says that since temptation is coming, we must pay attention. Pay attention to yourselves. So here's how this works out, I believe, in the context of the community of faith. Because I believe if we follow this, if, and if I'm, if I'm tracking correctly, I, I believe that what he's wanting us to say is we don't need to trip up because my goal and aim, if we look at the New Testament uh, as a whole, our, my goal and aim is maturity in Christ. So, so let me give you some things. I don't think Jesus is just randomly offering a parable and talking about faith and servanthood and temptations to sin. Uh, I don't think he's just randomly addressing these people as he gets ready to leave. I think that the, thematically what he's wanting to show us is some tangible 
tangible things that as the community of faith, as followers of Jesus, who are for sure going to hit bumps in the road through temptation, that these are some things that you need to do so that you can collectively and individually mature in your faith and, and spiritually. So what does he teach us here? I think there's three things that I want us to look at very intently this morning as he talks about these temptations that are going to come. I think there's three things that we just pull out of this that are important for us to grasp if we're to grow together to more spiritual depth than we are now. And the first thing is that we have a responsibility to rebuke. Some of you are like, yeah. I've been waiting to do this, waiting for permission. Responsibility to rebuke. Look what Jesus says here. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So Jesus says that the first thing we should be willing to do in the face, faith of, of, excuse me, in the face of sin that has been birthed from temptation is that we need to be, is that he just, he's ready to hit us in the face when the temptation's coming at us, ready to just knock us out. He said that the first thing we need to do is be able to rebuke our brother. Now the thought alone of the word rebuke instantly brings to mind to us thoughts of harshness, judgmental, criticism, right? It's a, it's a tough word, rebuke. Why would he say for we to rebuke? We're not supposed to be that. We're supposed to be gracious. But now Jesus here is using the word rebuke, I believe, in the biblical sense. And I think he's using it, I believe, to show the importance of engaging and being engaged with each other as brothers and sisters of the faith. The current landscape of the church is one in which we come across very polished We come across very much put together, no struggles. And so to rebuke carries the feeling in our minds instantly of that I don't struggle. I'm good, but obviously you do. So let me tell you how you have offended God. But listen, rebuke is nothing like that scripturally. I believe scripturally rebuke is birthed from a deep, deep place of community where we fight for each other in the, for the personal pursuit of holiness and maturity. We recognize that temptation is going to come. And when it takes root and grows into sin, a lot of pain and suffering is heading our way. And we don't want that. We want to resist that. So we are called to call sin according to God's word, call it sin, and push each other along in the faith that we might not let it create a stronghold in us. We were put together for more than just to have people to sit by on a Sunday to worship. We were put together as the body of Christ because we have a role in each other's lives. Listen how Paul would address a similar subject in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself. Why? Lest you too be tempted. And he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But, each, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be, himself, be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Because I believe that rebuking means we open up our lives to speak truth to each other. That we don't let sin just persist. 
to know that we have brothers and sisters in our faith family who are going through some serious sin struggles and we just pretend like it's not happening. We don't address it because we're too afraid to, to, to have an uncomfortable conversation and we let them to continue to trip up and trip up and trip up over that same sin without going to them in love and seeking a restoration for them that they may grow mature in their faith. So I want to ask you a couple questions as we think about this. First of all, what is your motivation for confrontation? When we think about Jesus' commandment here, telling us that if our brother sins, rebuke him. And we think about what that means and the confrontation that it means, we must ask ourselves, is our heart pure in confronting our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you motivated out of a genuine desire to see them restored in an area of their life, be restored to Jesus? Do we care about them enough that we aren't just aggravated at them because of how it affects us personally, so we want to confront them, but no, we care about them so much that we, that, that we care about them enough that, we, that to see them and allow them to continue in this unconfessed sin outside of the will of God is something that absolutely breaks our heart because we know it is not the way in which God has designed us to do life. So for us to be walking in community very closely with, a, with, with, with individuals in our faith family, I think, and I'll talk about this in a moment, community in, in, in this is very essential, but for us to walk very carefully and closely in community and to allow our brothers and sisters to continue to, to persist in the same type of sin without, without confronting them on it very, very, very uh, honestly and, and openly so that they can be restored and refined closer to Christ. For us to do that, what kind of concern do we have for each other? Second, though, there's, a, there's another question we have to ask ourselves. Not only do we have the right attitude as we confront each other and fight for each other in the faith, but second, do we open up our lives to receive encouragement and rebuke from our faith family? Would you listen to me? Satan is an aggressive enemy. We can believe that and just pretend that that's not true, but it's true. Satan is an aggressive enemy. And he is very good at how he will attack you. And one of the ways that he can stunt you from being able to make a kingdom impact is by blinding you to the truth of your heart and condition. We're going to see in just a moment that when Jesus said the scripture that where two or three or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. That was not about a worship gathering. And I know I've used that before and I've thought about it. And as I dug in this week, I was thinking, as I read it, I was like, you know, that scripture where two or three are gathered in my name, that is not about a worship gathering. We're going to see in Matthew 18 in just a moment that Jesus was actually, in the context of, that, of that, those two scriptures, he was telling the Christians of that day that when they have to deal with sin against each other, in the context of a faith family, that when they are gathered there, he is with them. It comes right on the tails of what we're going to read in just a moment about how we encounter forgiveness with each other. And he says, as you have to do this, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm with you. So Jesus wants us to live in community in such a way that we can engage each other and be engaged. 
We can rebuke each other when sin is persistent. And again, it's not from a heart of, you know, you're a terrible person and I'm not. This is saying, I love you. I want you to be restored and move past the sin in your life. It's blinding you from seeing the truth of Jesus. It's blinding you from having the life that Jesus desires for you. It's, 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 it's robbing your allegiance. And I love you and I care about you too much to keep struggling this. I want to point it out. I want to show you what Jesus says about it scripturally. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. I want this stuff to be refined out of you so it's no longer such a strong temptation in your life. And because I love you so much, I, want to, I need to point this out to you. This is where I see a misalignment with the word. And I do this with a heart of grace. And I want you to know Jesus in a more real way through this. So Jesus wants us to live in such a way that we can engage each other in the midst of that pleading that we move away from the sin and temptation and darkness towards him. So I think we have together, we'll process this more in other sermons to come, but I think we have in community, there is a give and take where we are to pour into each other. That's why Jesus has us together, fighting, fighting for the faith together. There's a second thing. Because he says there's a responsibility to rebuke. But then also, I think, secondly, there is a responsibility to forgive. Look what Jesus says. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So Jesus, he continues by saying, listen, rebuke. Point out the issues at hand. And if, you, and if there's repentance, forgive him. If it's against an offense against us. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says, To be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then look what Jesus says. He says, if you have to forgive them multiple times, times. That is what we do as brothers and sisters who have received much grace. So why does Jesus instruct us in this? Why does he say forgive? And we know we're to exercise forgiveness. Why does he go in and say, if he asks you, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Why did he add that in there? I believe that Jesus wanted to remind us that sometimes repentance, sometimes turning from sin, sometimes it takes time to produce the fruits of righteousness that we long to see. Sometimes it's going to take much grace. It's going to take much mercy. You've heard the saying that if we take two steps forward, you know, people say, you know, I took two steps forward, but I took one step back. Well, guess what? That's still one step forward. We're still moving in the right direction. Sometimes repentance and the fruit that we desire from that will take time. But we celebrate forward movement. We offer grace and mercy in that, in our walk with Jesus and each other. And while walking through sanctification, we offer much grace to each other. You can watch in this building. You can watch uh, each week. We have the opportunity to have many people having children. And it's fun to watch these kids learning to walk. It's funny to see how uncoordinated they are and, and how much they're just trying to figure out what those two things hanging from their waist do. Now, if one of our children, we stand them up, 
and they're walking towards us and they were getting it and we're excited and then they fall over. What do we do? We celebrate the few steps they have taken and we help them get back up and we help them to continue how to learn. None of us would say, you got it, you got it, you got it. Golly, what is wrong with you? You were just doing it. Now you fell down. What is going on with you? No. In the same way, we celebrate obedience in the faith. And we say, man, brother, I, pick, man, I forgive you. I forgive you. And they walk and they stumble. And we say, I, I forgive you. And we walk again. And together, guess what? Over time, like a child, the falls become less and less. And so together as we walk with someone through repentance and, they, and we say, brother, and the sin is back in your life, bro. And I want to pray for you and I want to be, you to be encouraged. I want to help you up. Let's walk together. Let's get this again. Fall again. Hey, br- brother, I'm here, man. I see it's come back again. I want to walk with you. And guess what? They begin to fall less and less because they are being sanctified. And those temptations are becoming less and less of a temptation. So in the same way, we celebrate obedience in the faith and we offer forgiveness as we all fall and mess up. And if it's seven times in a day, we offer seven times forgiveness if there's repentance. Now, Peter would, would approach Jesus in Matthew's gospel and say, Jesus, he, you know, they, always wanted, they always needed to have some parameters. Just give us the steps, right? They always needed to know, what do we need to do? Who's my neighbor? Go and just tell me my little circle so I know who I need to be nice to. In a very similar way, Peter uh, would approach Jesus and he said, Jesus, I just need to know, how, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven? It's a perfect number. Is that good? Can we just do seven? And Jesus would say, seven? How about 70 times seven? How about you have an endless uh, amount of grace, the same way in which I showed it to you? So follow me here. Because this is difficult. We must rebuke sin even though we do not want to. We must forgive sin even though we do not always want to. But obedience in those areas is extremely important because to do so is to become more like Christ. To become more like Christ. Our obedience in forgiving others shows that we are trusting God to take care of the consequences. We do not have to withhold forgiveness because we got to make sure we control the outcome of what becomes of that process. Now, we offer forgiveness because we can trust that God is taking care of of our consequences. Now, let me, let me just real briefly, because we don't have much time, let me just kind of touch on, now, what do we do if they don't repent? Okay, because obviously, if we're going to be true to Scripture and walk through it, he's saying, if he repents, forgive him. And I think we must do a little bit of work in Matthew 18. You can follow behind me. Uh, this should be on the screen. Let me, let me read what, what Matthew's gospel would say about this. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So this is that rebuking. This is that, that's a, a nicer way to say rebuke. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Forgiveness and repentance has taken place. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of, two of you, here we go, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So follow me. 
How do we engage each other when sin comes and, and, and there's, there's problems between those in the faith community? I think, first of all, both passages say, go to the person. Go to the person themselves. Just you and don't, don't, don't take it to other people and get it. Just go to the person. In the grace of Jesus, offer an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness to take place. This isn't selfishly motivated, but spiritually. It's for edification, not argument. And if they repent, you have gained your brother. And he goes on to say, if he doesn't repent. When it says, get, get, take two or three with you, this is not round up the posse and attack. This is not get all vote of confidence from three people and then say, all right, now we're all standing here. We all agree. To get random people, I believe Jesus is saying in the context of community, take two or three others who are walking in the same community with you and say, look, here's the issue, brothers. We're, we're all together in community. Listen, hear the situation. Help us reinforce and understand how to work through this. Help us to understand how to process this because obviously that we are not resolving in our own. We need community. We need you around us to help us to be restored. And it says if he refused to listen to this, then bring him before the church. And if he's still unrepentant, then treat him like a Gentile. I'm like, whoa, Jesus. Wait a minute. Now what happened to grace and forgiveness? Now we're just throwing them out in the street. I want to explain this just a little. I believe Jesus is saying here, this is not a shunning. I believe that Jesus wants to show us here that we treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector by begging and pleading with them to repent and rejoin the family. Look how Jesus handled the, the, the gen, look how he handled the Pharisees and the tax collectors here. Look how he did it. He's in the context of talking to these guys. And Jesus is not casting them away from his kingdom. He's trying to show them the right way and how their ways are wrong. And he's confronting them. And they're not receiving it. But he keeps reinforcing his teaching. And so I think Jesus wants to say here, look, if we got a brother or sister that's in that place, we want to we treat them as if they're someone who is not following and walking with Jesus so that we can, we can, we can see them restored, see them rejoined to the family. Now the truth here is that in most cases, this doesn't happen. And I think the body of Christ is missing something in this. Now, I hate confrontation, but I love sanctification. And I want to see it happen among our community. Now, the truth in, in this is that, you know, I believe that the level of spiritual growth and the maturity in our churches today are stunted because biblically we aren't taking sin and temptation seriously. And we aren't taking personal growth and maturity personally. And we have become content with just floundering and allowing our brothers and sisters to do the same. To just flounder around in the faith. And this is not how Jesus intended for his community and church to happen. The body of Christ was not designed to be a place or an event. The body of Christ was never intended to be a group of strangers that collectively come together in a building. It was never designed to be something that we ridiculously pick based on what we like the best. The be what music style we like. What media do we like. The programs that I like the best. Because to base church solely on what, uh, to base solely church solely on that is to be a part of something that has no power and no strength apart from the Holy Spirit at work. And it's just some place that we hang out on the weekends. 
I believe that the body of Christ is a messy group of people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and who love God so much and who love each other so much that we are relentless to fight for personal holiness in each of our lives. That is a very active life-on-life activity. So I believe we have a responsibility to correct, to rebuke, to forgive for the glory of God and for the good of the church. And finally, I believe we have the responsibility to faithfulness. I love how Jesus gets to this place and he has told, the, he's told his disciples a very difficult thing to do. And look what their reply is. You gotta give us more faith. If you're asking us to do this, I mean, they didn't shift gears on Jesus here, okay? Jesus has just said, you gotta forgive them. You gotta, ex- you gotta be in community with each other. It's gonna be raw and gritty and dirty and you gotta get in the middle of it. And they says, God, you gotta increase our faith. It's hard for us to see this. You gotta increase our faith. The disciples realize the weight of this. And immediately they say to him, we need more faith. They did not say here, God, I resolve to believe more. I will exercise what you have told me. No. They recognize that they don't have that level and kind of faith. And they say, God, you're going to have to increase our faith. We see this. We see your calling, but we've got to have faith. And now I believe that Jesus responds to his disciples by saying, you need to believe more. He's not saying here, well, your faith is not strong enough then. No, he says, he says you got to have the right kind of faith. Because look what he says. He said, let me tell you what, when you have the right kind of faith that I'm talking about, when you have the right kind of faith, you could have the, f- the faith the size of a little bitty seed. You could have that much of the right kind of faith. And he says, you could uproot trees. So he said it's not having a huge type of faith. He said it's having even just a little of the right kind of faith. And you can accomplish this. So what is the right kind of faith? It's the faith that liberates us to engage each other because we know that Jesus has fully paid the price for us. That's the right kind of faith. It's not faith, I I got more belief in myself that I can have the unction to do this. No, this is a faith saying I can approach my brother's very humbly and graciously. I can receive correction from people. Why? Because I know that Jesus has fully paid the price for me. There is no condemnation for me. I can receive this openly because it is for my good. It has nothing to say that, well, I'm not a good Christian anymore. No, Jesus has secured that for you. And when we receive rebuke and offer it, we're able to move into spiritual maturity. This kind of faith that he talks about allows us to confront each other in love and to forgive like crazy, to engage each other in our personal walk, taking the truth of God's word and living it out together. And we can do that with this kind of faith faith because we firmly believe that powerful things happen when we trust in the works and movement of Jesus through us. That he can do things in us that are unbelievably life-altering and changing. So give us more faith. God, we need more faith. I don't have the strength all the time to trust that what Jesus did for me was sufficient enough that I can labor with my brothers and sisters and not take it personally. 
anchor me back to what Jesus did so that as I come out here and work out my salvation with my family, I can receive critique and I can receive correction and I can receive those things motivated by love and grace because my anchor is secure in the work of Jesus Christ. And so then Jesus would end this parable with a, he would end with a parable and this parable would lay some groundwork for what Jesus would know might happen. I love this. And we got to end real quick, but I, we've got to go right here really quickly because Jesus wants to end with a parable because he would know what would happen when this type of exponential, spiritually maturing growth would take place. When that starts to happening, as, as, as the body of Christ is operating together with forgiveness and rebuke and, and, being, and increasing in a faithfulness to do that, having spiritual maturity as the aim, he knew that to live out what Jesus had instructed his people to live out might cause his disciples to presume that in some way they had something to do with it. So Jesus tells a parable at the end about a servant. And he presents three questions in the parable. He says, if you have a servant who has been working, he's coming out of the field and he's nasty, will you say to him, come on in and recline at the table? He said, no, you're not going to do that. He says, would he rather say, prepare supper for me, serve me first, and afterward you will eat and drink? Yes, that would be the proper response. Does he thank the servant for what, for doing what he had commanded? He says, no, you wouldn't do that, right? Jesus wants to humble and remind us that when these things begin to operate, it is not about us and our activity, but it is about Jesus working to refine and deepen us as a faith family. What is Jesus implying here? Jesus is implying that watching ourselves, rebuking and correcting in the faith, forgiving, believing is nothing extraordinary. This is exactly what he designed us to do to live as good servants of Jesus. And when we do it, we are living out life the way that a true servant was designed to live. So this morning, I could offer a lot of different directions of, of encouragement in this. I believe the scripture speaks so true to itself as to what the purpose and process is in this. All the way through the New Testament, we see the importance of fighting together in the faith. We don't do this alone. We don't do this alone. And so if there is a constant drum that is beaten throughout this passage this morning, it is community. It's community. It's healthy, gospel-centered community that whose aim is not community itself, whose aim is nothing more than knowing God more. And so no matter what it takes so that we can know him more through his word, we'll do it. If it means receiving correction, man, is it going to hurt? You can ask my wife. I'm not good at receiving correction when I know I'm wrong. It's humbling. But you know what? It's good for me. It's good for me. It helps me to learn in our relationship how to respond better, how to listen better, how to understand where she's coming from. The same way in the faith. Is it, is it difficult? Yeah, man, it stings. But when I know that I'm walking in community with someone, if someone in my community group comes to me and says, man, I just want to encourage you in something, I'm going to receive that. Because I know their heart is my sanctification. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we will be true to Scripture to fight with, for each other in the faith. 
Because we want to all be able to be presented as spiritually mature before God. And God will do an awesome work in us, I believe, when we are obedient to his way. God always blesses his plan. He always blesses his plan. And so I pray that through this, we will see some encouragement this morning that will deepen deepen us as we learn what it's like to walk in community together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray together.